Welcome to School of Everything Else. This episode began life as what was supposed to be a 20-minute quick review for the Patreon. But the more games got piled on, the more I encountered and experienced, the more it became a fully-fledged episode of School of Everything Else. So here for all of you now is the Sony PlayStation Revisited. With the release of the mini PlayStation Classic this December, everyone is looking back on the console released in the mid-90s, which, for many of us, was our formative teen years, a time in which we had a lot of hours to spare to play games. The mini machine follows on from Nintendo's NES Classic and the SNES Classic, I'm not calling it an SNES, I don't have the time, from the past two years, themselves like well-made, implemented versions of those permanently shitty Sega emulator micro-consoles that they sell in malls that keep getting updated but always have the same list of games that's on the Sega collection discs you can get for modern consoles, but crucially, with far worse emulation. I hate those Sega things, and it saddens me that this Sony machine seems, from the outside, to have more in common with them than it does the two Nintendo Minis, both of which I relish owning. When it was first announced, suspiciously close to its release date, back in September of this year, 2018, there were five games with a promised 15 more. Those were announced a month later, and I pre-ordered based on the fact that the Nintendo machines sold out immediately and were a bitch to get hold of at a sensible price for months and even years for some. Also, my rider was, it's got to have Metal Gear Solid. If it doesn't hit... Metal Gear Solid or GTFO, I believe, were the <laughs> words I used. But then I did some... You don't got Metal Gear Solid, <laughs> I don't give a rat's ass. But then I did... <laughs> But then I did some mental arithmetic going on the fact that the strong reason to play the 20 games on offer was not just nostalgia, but settling back into old clothes and rooms. This goes beyond just the fond remembrance and more to muscle memory and re-examining the feelings they originally instilled. So it's kind of like nostalgia plus. Um... There's almost no chance of picking up a game created in that era when 3D spaces were only just beginning to be explored, one which I've never played before, and find myself loving the experience. There's just too many hurdles to leap for them to compete with the past 23 years of progress. That's why Nintendo hasn't rushed forward with its N64 Mini. They know those games don't hold up as well as the 2D ones do. They're less charming, more awkward, and very ugly, with just these textures my god it's like they photographed shit saved the file as only 10 pixels wide and then stretched it and spread it over everything polygonally they're very pointy plus they know that without goldeneye 64 their machine is only ever going to be a disappointment and that game is tied up in continuing rights deadlock with sony who owns bond and microsoft who own rare so is that like having a turkey where somebody owns the neck, and somebody else owns the feet, and everyone's <laughs> and someone, squabbling and over someone the, has the breasts. breast part? Yeah. Yeah. No one can eat this turkey no. because they're all saying, well, I technically have the eye on the thighs. 
could could we all just enjoy it? No, because I own the thighs. I got to get paid. Finger sign means money. Meanwhile, the turkey's in the corner going mouldy. Going cop. Yeah, <laughs> it's rotting on the vine. The last few years of being able to play this without going Ugh, at Doctor Doak are just bleeding away. So I worked out swiftly enough that of the roster, three of those twenty were games I had played before at some length and would want to play again at some length: Battle Arena to Shinden, Grand Theft Auto, and Siphon Filter. And four of them had a chance of keeping me playing for many hours, those being my favourites, Tekken 3, Final Fantasy VII, Resident Evil Director's Cut, and Metal Gear Solid. All the rest, the other 13, would most likely be played for a bit and then discarded, meaning I've spent an average of £12.85 per game on the seven I want to play, or more likely £22.50 on the four I would play for many hours. That is a lot of money for some old-ass games, especially as five of the seven have had multiple iterations and upgrades since... Resident Evil has had a remake and a remaster so good that we did a show on it, and Final Fantasy VII has this vaporware remake in permanent development. We want it. They should want to make it. They should want to make it. (laughs) It was in the magazine. (laughs) For reference, sometime in 2007, when the guys who went on to become Giant Bomb were still working at GameSpot, they were making a podcast called The Hotspot, one of the shows that inspired me to start podcasting. So this is 11 years ago, and this is a message they received. Hey guys, just read my magazine, and uh, it's really starting to piss me off that they're really debating that Final Fantasy VII remake, and I think they should do it because uh, they said that, the guy said that he doesn't want to do it, uh, uh, one of the guys, and then but the director of Square Enix says as long as people want to make it and people want it, they there's never an end in sight. And... Uh, we want it, obviously. I mean, I'd actually buy a PS3 for that game. Uh, we want it. We want it. Uh, if they they should want to make it because we want it, we buy a system. I buy a system, even though how expensive it is. One of the few games that could actually make me buy the system. I would buy a system. So I'm just saying. I don't know what you guys uh, tell me. What you think about that? All right, bye. Do it. Wait, wait a minute. Well put. What a compelling. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Magazine. <laughs> yeah. Like, whose uh, who's uh, podcast do you think this is? I, he, was, he got his magazine. The magazine. Uh, uh, Reader's man. Digest or Boys Life or something. Yeah. From 2005. Yeah. And then the one guy said that they wanted. To, weren't you listening? If they they should want to make it because we want it, we buy a system. I buy a system. The one guy said he didn't want to do it, but then the other guy <laughs> yeah. said that he wanted to do it, okay. and he thinks that they should do it because he'd okay. do it because he, he would do it. They, he, he, would he would buy it. it. He would Even buy the system. Would, I would buy a system because so. he we wants it. it. He would definitely do it because he, he wants it. it. We want it, so he would buy it. It was in the yes. magazine. I mean, yeah. he wants it, and it was in the yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was in the magazine. So, so uh, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. But I agree. Exactly. Next call. And that was two thousand. That little child who wrote in then is now an old bearded man. Metal Gear Solid did get a remake for the GameCube called The Twin Snakes, but it seems to have been consigned to history's dumpster because it has been absent from every HD upgrade opportunity or future cross-platform release. Now, you could argue that the change in mechanics to those of Sons of Liberty and the crazy new action sequences ruin an otherwise near P-word game. But you could hardly argue that making it unavailable aside from at crazy secondary market prices, an average of £50 in the UK and you'll need a GameCube or a Wii to make it dance, is a good marketing plan. 
Point is, I found it harder and harder to argue that the Mini was a great slice of PlayStation experience. So I started asking myself what the alternatives were. How could I invest in a machine that could play PlayStation 1 games and make them look and feel both as good as they can be and yet authentic to the original machine with the bare minimum of contemporary HD polish? How could I both lower the average cost per game and raise the number of games that I could play, encompassing the ones I really wanted that were absent from this minimal list of 20 for reasons of licensing, obscurity, the type of game being covered by other games on the list, cheapness on Sony's part, or just lack of inspiration? It was pretty simple. Get a PlayStation. Invest in a decades-old console and just buy the games individually on disc. What a brilliant, clear plan with no obvious pitfalls. But what about... That there were no obvious pitfalls. I picked up a PS1. That was the slim white version released in July 2000 as a budget model with the PS2 having just been released to co-compete with the Dreamcast and the Nintendo 64 and even the Game Boy, which was enjoying new lease of life with Pokemon Red and Blue, but not the Saturn, which I believe was at that point dead as a doornail, which, yeah, of course, because... But yeah, that's the thing. Like, with the Dreamcast had come out, it was Sega's new great white hype. And the PS2 came out and smashed it to pieces. But the Saturn was already dead, so they didn't have, like... We could limber up with a Saturn Slim. It's good that they called it the Saturn, though, because everything else ran rings around it. Honestly? There were certain things the PlayStation 1 did better, and there were certain things the Saturn did better. One of the things that Saturn did really well, especially um, the Japanese version and, like boosted American versions was the Capcom 2D fighters like X-Men versus Street Fighter they were arcade perfect on the Saturn and if you play them on the PS1 ew it just it couldn't handle 2D as well mm. it's weird but uh, things like 3D tended to work better on PS1 and also they had a far more expansive games library I managed to find a PS1 that had been in someone's loft for 18 years and had barely been played The white controller was still in its wrapper, the cable having never been unfurled. I figured, but it smelled nice. You know, it had that kind of new New plastic smell, smell, yeah, as opposed to stinky house smell. I figured better to pick up a machine that was nearly new rather than one that had been ridden hard and put away wet. There were a bunch of bundled games, including Metal Gear Solid and Resident Evil 2, two of my must-haves. It is worth noting, by the way, that I've wanted to replay Resident Evil 2 for many years now since playing the HD upgrade of the original. And with the remake with the Resident Evil 7 engine just weeks away from release at time of this recording, time was getting short and this title was not on the PlayStation Mini's list of 20, so this feels like a decision I was always going to reach. The rest of the games I could flog on eBay to recoup some of the loss on the console. As soon as it arrived, I hit a snag. While it had been shown in the listing running on a flat screen TV by use of an RF aerial cable, you know, the round kind we used to use during the Reagan, Bush 1 and Clinton administrations, well that cable was outputting a signal so weak my 50 inch Panasonic 4K TV was having none of it. My TV literally spit upon this tiny little white PS1 looking like a tree ball mint on a slice of raw halloumi cowering before the might of a screen the size of a Star Destroyer. Some of you guys helped me out on Twitter. Doing a manual channel search yielded no results, but acquiring a composite cable did. 
I went out the next morning to my local CEX computer game exchange and picked up one of them for a fiver. The same official Sony cable works across PS1, PS2, and PS3, folks. So if you've got one already, you don't need to go buy a new one. Composite, as you may recall from the late Clinton and Bush 2 administration, is red and white for stereo sound and yellow for video. My TV didn't actually have those ports, but it did have Component, which is red, green, and blue. That, you may recall, helped the Nintendo Wii look less disgusting in the era of HD. Turns out you can shove the yellow bit into the green socket and it will display. After a fashion... It started out in black and white, but I fiddled the TV's video display and finally got Tekken 3 working in colour. I say working. It was fuzzy and blurry and looked like a dog's breakfast. And then I realised quickly, with no other available cable, short of some kind of signal conversion box, this was what the PS1 base machine was going to look like on my TV forever. Now, this is going to be different for you if you have older TVs available to you in your house, especially if you're a console collector with your own mini museum. I know a couple of them. But for me, who just wanted to sit on my couch and play Tekken 3 with my daughter, I was looking at a screen that offended mine eyes. I looked into buying a PlayStation 2 Slim to keep that form factor, so like a little console, just not by the TV, but I found out that the red-white-yellow cable situation would yield exactly the same results, and I reached the conclusion I'd been avoiding for years. It was time to go back to PlayStation 3. Now, a bunch of you have been muttering, maybe even shouting for several minutes, why not just get your PlayStation 3 out? It plays all PS1 discs, and you can buy games digitally on the store. Well, point one. I didn't own a PS3. I haven't since 2012, when, for no reason whatsoever, my four-year-old machine wouldn't relinquish the disc for Little Big Planet. No matter what I did, I couldn't get that disc out, and eventually, after opening the damn hood up, I had to accept defeat. It was dead. And I'd spent the past few months pissed off at the machine anyway because it couldn't do what the Xbox 360 could. It didn't install most games from the disc, something which, by the way, killed the first generation of Xbox 360s by putting too much strain on the motors and the lasers. Burnout Paradise took 27 hours to download from the PSN. It's probably less than that now because we have a better connection. But that's insane. I thought you were going to say it's probably still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And I couldn't turn the machine off or download in the background or do anything else with it. Whereas with the 360, you just click download and then you turn your machine off and go to bed. Or you play something else as long as it's not too online heavy. You can't even charge your pads back up unless the machine is on. The USB ports go dead. That still happens. You have to leave your machine running and idle and sucking up electricity for hours on end just to charge the pads. The connection to friends was laughably poor back then compared to Microsoft. I remember having to like type individual messages with my controller. It was absurd. Do you remember like PlayStation Home? Yeah, it was like Second Life for PlayStation. It was grotesque. And half the games were cross-platform anyway, and I was opting to just get them on 360. This is just a way of explaining why, after my PS3 died, choking on Sackboy's woolen corpse, I didn't buy another ever again. I just didn't have the urge. Hmm. 
0.2. They're enormous. I mean, they're the size of a steamroller's dad. I have no room under my TV with a PS4, an Xbox One, a Switch, a Wii U, a 360, and a Blu-ray player purely to play American DVD discs because of region coding, which helps nobody and only hurts people who care about films. And yeah, this is very much a first world problem. I don't have room for all my consoles under my massive TV! This is what I spend my money on, though. I don't go out, we don't go on vacation. We go out to dinner roughly 1.2 times per month. I don't have a flashy car, I don't drink or smoke, I don't buy fancy watches or fancy clothes. We do play a lot of video games. Not so much me getting immersed in individual games for ages, but our family playing a lot of different video games for short periods of time. We live really frugally. I was watching a video the other day on seven tips that frugal people use to live by, and I was like, yep, I do that, 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 and that. What else you got? A hell of a lot of money that we make on Patreon goes into entertainment, which then we talk about for you guys. Circle of life. So anyway, yeah, I didn't want another great big fat machine. I wanted a neat little micro console, or the closest thing to it, and the prospect of a PS3 meant dead man's boots to one of those existing consoles, and that's if I could even Tetris these around to accommodate a machine the size of Bigfoot's ass. There's also the point that in the console's lifetime, Sony released four iterations of their PS3 machine, and they got progressively worse each time. The first could play PS2 games, as well as PS1. They removed that for the second iteration for no good goddamn given reason, besides that it was cheaper. And I am huge on backwards compatibility. If I amass a games collection, I'd really like to keep dipping into it on my new machine while my old one goes bye-bye. The third version, charitably referred to as a slim, is basically just as big as the first two, with no better features. And the fourth was this disgusting, ugly monstrosity that looked like it was wrenched from the top of the hi-fi system of a coke-addled 80s guy with this top-loading Betamax ridged tray thing that just took all the slide and orchestral ceremony out of booting up a game. I would have bought a PS3 years ago if they could have got the form factor down to what the PS2 Slim or something approaching that, or the PS4, or the 360, or the Mega Drive 2, or anything else in the history of this medium that didn't look like a retrograde Ukrainian CD player. And point three, they're expensive. The PS1 averages at about £30 on eBay, while the PS3 averages £80, plus an extra controller for another £20. Suddenly this little endeavour to maximise my games per spend is getting absurd. Add to that the resentment that my PS4 doesn't play PS1 games, and why not? The PS2 did, the PS3 did, the PS Vita did, even the bloody PSP did. Hell, the PlayStation TV did, and believe me, I did consider for an afternoon picking up one of these mini set-top boxes just to play the digital library and Vita games, but there were too many disc-based titles that I needed to get at. 
At this point, in my head, the tech required to make the PS4 play PS1 games is like a jelly bean made of wishes that Sony could just toss into the cauldron, but instead they hoard those magic beans in a jar and make micro-consoles for suckers, same as Nintendo did in eliminating their extensively utilised virtual console libraries, the tight-fisted, covetous old dragons. That's, by the way, what these mini SNES and NES things are. They're like, oh yeah, we, we've shit-canned the uh, virtual consoles, but you can pay for them all again in this little thingy. We'll make it freely available for like a second. It's, it's not like the virtual console where they're there all the time and they're the same price all the time because mm. Nintendo have never heard of sales. That's Nintendo's marketing strategy, though, isn't it? Limited edition, shit we've run out, everybody wants one, let's make some more. They don't make some more, though. It takes ages for them to make more, and in the meantime, the ones make it out like bandits are the bandits, the scalpers. <laughs> <clears throat> That's why I still have my Wii U, not for the HD Zelda remasters, for those virtual console games I paid for on the Wii that stopped dead at that failed upgrade, the Wii U. Backwards compatibility, of course, doesn't matter to everyone. If you mention backwards compatibility on Twitter and say, this is a pain for me, I really like backwards compatibility, someone's going to chime in with, I don't care about backwards compatibility. I know, I get it. For me, the ability to decently emulate and bring games forward, defying the already antiquated idea of console generations, is in line with Steam. And it makes perfect sense when we're being encouraged to buy non-physical games by companies that, given the choice would rather not have to pay dividends to GameStop. In fact, let's just hear Jim Sterling's take on the eons-long tension between physical retail and the games companies. The game industry takes such a high percentage of the money from new sales that there's almost no benefit to GameStop making them. Reports vary, but commonly I hear it's about two bucks that GameStop makes off a $60 game. Now, GameStop takes all the money from used sales, all of it, so there's literally no benefit to the game industry in the sale of second-hand games. What this means is the primary way in which both these companies are making their money actively fucks the entity they need to make that money in the first place. Right, imagine that Megatron and Starscream were one person, like melded together. Now imagine that there were two of them. Two of these mega screams, and they had to do business together, simultaneously holding megalomaniacal power and snivelling obedience, both attempting to undermine each other while also maintaining their shared dominion of lawful evil. It's a dramatic way of putting it, I know, but it's sort of representative of the relationship between GameStop and the big budget game industry. Two sad Megatron Starscream hybrids pretending to be friends and wishing the other were dead. All digital is ultimately where we're headed because GameStop are going to lose this battle eventually. GameStop need games to keep coming out. The games industry don't need GameStop to sell them. Not anymore. And just look at the trouble I had to go to in order to make this work. And that being the case, keeping these games alive, if it's possible, should always be a serious consideration. Imagine if all the games you bought on Steam in 2007, all the way through to, say, 2015, now couldn't be played because you're on an upgraded version of Steam. So all that said, I bought a fucking PS3 Slim, version 1, the third iteration of the console. I moved the Wii U to the cupboard. I guess I'm now going to have to invest £40 in the identical Mario Kart on the Switch and 30 additional pounds on a third Joy-Con so that Sharon could play too. I tell you what, on the day I really, really want to play Mario Kart, I will Mario play the Kart. third Joy-Con. <laughs> 
it's so expensive for just moving it across. It's the same game. And it's the same game as the one I've got on 3DS. <sighs> anyway, and I walked all the way back to CEX and I bought the PS3 home. And I set it up and I installed Tekken 3. As in, like, I put the PS1 disc in. That's as much of the installation as you're going to get. And it looked way better than the PS1 had done just an hour or so earlier. And I ejected the disc. I tried to eject the disc. And it wouldn't come out. And I reeled back in fright as the ghost of my long-dead PS3, Jacob Marlowe, grinned back at me, the spectral form of Sackboy still clamped in its unopening jaws. It wasn't possible that six years had passed and I'd somehow, on the anniversary of picking up my first PS3, fallen prey to what had killed it within two minutes! It just wasn't fucking possible! And yet it was. Tekken 3 would not eject. I went online. I ranted and raved on Twitter. I found the forced eject procedure where you basically like... Get a paper clip and stick it in a hole? No. <laughs> no, there'll be no sticking things in holes. <laughs> uh, you got to turn it off mm-hmm. and on sharply. Again. Pull it, turn it off and on again by pulling out the cable and then stick it back in while holding the eject button and the, the motor goes... <laughs> and it's supposed to throw the disc out and it didn't. <laughs> This can't be healthy. Then you've got to stick your little finger in the port. Whoa, hello. <laughs> Tickle it under the chin. I am not doing that to my PS3. Go on. <laughs> I'm giving Pull you this the ba- aerial cable until it throws up. <laughs> <sighs> I bundled the console back up into a waterproof bag because at this point the freezing drizzle of a dark English November was now driving sideways and I walked it back down the hill my third time that day. They couldn't do a simple exchange, it needed to be warranty tested which takes 40 minutes and I needed to be home to open up the front door for Lyra coming back from school so I walked back up the hill, every jagged raindrop seemingly fired from a tiny cannon directly into my eyeballs. I sloped back again an hour later, and the good people at CEX had retrieved Tekken 3 for me and pronounced the motor of this one dead. I hate buying second-hand in stores because I can't assess whether the previous owner cared about their machine or regularly fucked it on Saturday nights, leaving it weeping and clogged up with sick. I couldn't be sure whether low-memory consoles would have received more or less play than high-memory ones. I figured if you're buying a 320GB one, you're playing it all the time. And 120GB is more of an occasional thing, but that's assumption as much as it is estimation. There's no exact science, and I decided to go for the one that didn't have its feet ripped out by a troglodyte. There was one with two feet missing, they'd just been yanked out, and there was one with four feet missing. (laughs) I walked home a fourth time up that hill, a hill in Lincoln which is literally named Steep Hill, and it's for a reason. Oh, people laugh at the bottom, but they pant and sweat and fall down dead at the top. And by the time I got back and hooked up the PS3 Slim, I was beginning to get paranoid. If this third attempt didn't work, would I never be able to play these games? It started playing fine. I went into the setup options. There are two that you have to toggle if you want the games to look better. Obviously, if you already have a PS3, you'll know this. Upscaler and smoothing. That reduces the jagged corners. I, of course, paused for breath before pressing eject. 
So finally I was able to play the Tekken 3 disc that I'd purchased on eBay along with a bunch of others and this ended up costing me substantially more than just the PS Mini. So if you don't own a PS3 and you don't want the fuss and you don't mind what games are on offer, a PS Mini might be the best way to go. If you do own a PS3, it might be time to buy some games digitally or you could brave the cesspit of acceptable condition discs, that is eBay. You see, PlayStation 1 discs weren't made like Blu-rays. They were made from a gossamer-thin poly alloy constructed of hen's teeth and angel's farts that will scratch if you look at the disc too hard. And when they're scratched, that means the full motion that Sony was so keen on will play with juddering, stammering unreliability every single time, making a mockery of your debilitated experience. Similarly, the CD-style cases were designed to crack and splinter if you so much mention that you own them. So the chances of you finding anything in the condition you remember it are slim until you are paying three to ten times as much as you would for an acceptable disc. Just cleaning them fucks these things. Taking a soft, clean cloth to them and just wiping it just creates these horrible lacerations. You're like, what? What is cutting this thing? It's made of, like, soft cheese or something. I also downloaded a bunch of my old games from the PlayStation Store, which helpfully organises your purchases, along with every demo you've ever downloaded, which is rather like listing every film you've ever bought on Blu-ray in amongst every trailer you've ever watched. Enjoy sifting through that long, linear, chronological list, folks. Microsoft did the same thing on 360, forcing me to sift through about 1,000 digital purchases on that machine four at a time forever when I need to re-download a game that has disappeared from their storefront. Something like Outrun Online Arcade. It's a wonderful game, now completely delisted, impossible to get hold of. So if I want to download it, I I did this ages ago, but you go back through that damn list, you find it, you re-download it, but it is a fucking bitch and a half because you got to trawl through hundreds of rock band songs and Street Fighter costumes and horse armor. I'm just kidding, I didn't buy horse armor. And sometimes it just trips itself up and makes me start all over again. Neither of these two companies figured a way of sorting alphabetically or by type or adding a search function. They never figured it would be a way to properly curate your digital purchases. It's better now, but that one step removed is jarring. That first night, I noted that Resident Evil 2 and Nemesis had little American flags on their PlayStation Store icons in the UK. A little digging revealed that they were the American versions available in the UK. I snapped them up and was delighted to find that they ran at full speed with the full screen. RE2 is even the DualShock version. I mean, Nemesis was always DualShock, but this DualShock was like a second edition of Resident Evil 2. Originally, it was cross-pad only, which made movement awkward rather than flowing. I also purchased the original Resident Evil 1. Americans may not be familiar with PAL and NTSC, but in the 90s, our TVs ran differently to yours and so couldn't run Tekken 3 at the native 60 hertz, having to slow it down to 50 hertz, which makes it a more methodical game, but if you were lucky enough at the time to play the American one, the speed boost was pretty amazing. Every game in Europe played slower. Every game was also squashed. The square image was crushed in from the top and bottom, making Cloud in Final Fantasy VII into a squat dwarf, turning circles into ovals, equilateral triangles into isosceles. Every game was, by today's standards, broken. And Sony, in their infinite wisdom, 
back in 2007 when the PS3 was released, chose to start putting these broken-ass PAL games onto their European storefronts. I bought a bunch of games like Driver and Siphon Filter back then like this, and they just played like I remembered, but I knew there was better. If you're British and you grew up playing the PlayStation, when you first see the American logo, when it goes it feels oddly like it's been stretched upwards, like it's been pulled. It's not. It's that the P logo was always squashed, and you've been seeing it wrong all these years. It's a head fuck. Then I found out that you could start an American account on your PS3, and provided you paid with voucher codes, because otherwise, if you're trying to pay on a credit card, it would say, where do you live in the United States? I live in England? Nope. There's no drop-down box to say anywhere other than United States. And when I tried to hook up my PayPal, it went, there's been an error. I mean, the PayPal thing just drove me nuts, because it's like, I've got so many dollars in there. I get paid via Patreon in dollars. Let me give you my money! But... Provided you paid with voucher codes, you can buy from their US storefront, including the non-broken NTSC 60Hz PS1 games. A few minutes after downloading the Resident Evils, I went digging for my old passwords to my American account, having remembered it, managed to reactivate it, and found I had already purchased Resident Evil 2 and 3 back in 2012. But by that point, I'd already downloaded the ones from the English store and I couldn't get a refund. So that was £16 down the drain, along with the realisation that I could have got the American DualShock version of Resident Evil 1. On the upside, I also did get to re-download Silent Hill and Final Fantasy VII, the American versions, saving myself the foolish repurchase there, because they were on my list of games to get. So let me finally talk about the games and what it's like to play them now on a PS3 on a 4K TV. For starters, those wired basic version 1 pads in with the Mini are something I don't want to be playing with. Even though only a few games were DualShock compatible, it brings them alive. And it takes them out of this four-directional plane which never quite sat with 3D implementation. The DualShock 3 is a truly excellent pad that most of us take for granted. It just feels right in your hands. Resident Evil 2, with the DualShock 3, specifically for a Brit used to the stumpy Leon and Claire fumbling around the police station, is an upgraded dream to play. I devoured that game over the course of last Sunday, playing Claire from beginning to end, and then all of Leon the day after. The structure of the enclosed landscape that you're exploring is replete with sensible design decisions, heightening tension and mixing it up. The music is fantastic. The action veers from attempting to avoid damage to crowd control to desperately trying to dispatch sudden dangerous attackers to puzzle solving to tension. I am looking forward to the remake so that we can do a show on this game because I have a lot to say. Honestly, this whole Herculean endeavour was worth it just to play the original Resident Evil 2 again like that. That was one thing that was not disappointing at all. It, in fact, exceeded expectations. The game has a lot of meaning for me. It got me through a shit 1998. (laughs) 
I purchased a $20 PSN card for a small markup from My Gift Card Supply. That's a company who did things by the book and got me my code in minutes and who I mention to you now in case you need to do the same, especially if you're British. I am more interested in helping you than I am in promoting them, although they were great. I have a duty to you rather than promoting them. Buying cards online is a nightmare of dodgy scammers and I would save you the uncertainty, the anxiety and the risk of getting screwed over or being sent stolen property. I like to do things legit. That got me the best version of Metal Gear Solid for $10 and for the same price the American Resident Evil 1 which is billed as the director's cut which is the second edition but is actually the third dual shock once you actually get into the game. Now folks, stick control is great but the music for that third version is an atrocity. The original version of Resident Evil score, which features in the 1996 game that we know and love, and it's also on the second edition director's cut, was composed by Makoto Tomazawa, Akiri Kaida, and Masami Ueda. And it is a stone-cold classic of atmospheric pressure. That's the one that was drawn from for the GameCube and HD re-releases. The symphonic score for the DualShock 3rd edition was ostensibly composed by Mamoru Samuragok, the Beethoven of Japan. He was slowly going deaf while he was composing his best stuff. But, as it turns out, in retrospect, he used a ghostwriter that he has only just now admitted to. And that ghostwriter must have been fucking Blinky from Pac-Man, because this is terrible. I haven't gone back in as Chris yet, I'm still yet to finish with Jill, but when I do I am bringing out my erroneously purchased British version of the Director's Cut because I would rather have it be squashed and squat and distorted and fiddly and slow with the original music than listen to another note of this pig fuckery. And it being a game, you can't simply put the soundtrack on in the background. You could, but it wouldn't necessarily match up. I mean, you could you could diligently go through and do that, but it would somewhat reduce the tension if you have to keep pausing to change the music when, I don't know, a dog's jumping at you. And also, there's a lot of boom, like sudden jump scare music, which you wouldn't get unless you're like, well, wait a second, I've got to add the jump scare jump music. Scare myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now basically the DualShock version is, it's good to use the, the stick for... But, I mean, really, the the ideal best version would be the American second edition, just the director's cut, because that way you get the original music, full-size screen, decent speed. You don't get the DualShock controls, but you also, it's not horrible to listen to. And if you went to the American storefront right now, that's what they claim they're selling you, the American second edition director's cut. But you get the third edition, the upgraded version? Folks who buy the Mini know this. That PAL 2nd Edition is the one you're going to be getting. Squashed, slow, and playable only on the crosspad. But it will sound awesome. And that's Americans too. Yes, stuck with it, mateys. Regardless of where you buy the PlayStation Mini, you can buy it in New York City. You're getting the British version of Resident Evil. I don't, I don't know, know what, what happened. happened. Barry, where's Barry? Well, I'm sorry, but he's probably... 
Because that's another thing Sony did. It filled that roster of 20 with nine buggered, compromised PAL versions for seemingly no reason. So you got Resident Evil, that's the first casualty of the console wars. Along with Battle Arena Toshinden, Jumping Flash, Cool Borders 2, Destruction Derby, Oddworld Abe's Odyssey, Grand Theft Auto, Rainbow Six, and most bafflingly of all, Tekken 3. Slow, methodical, squashed Tekken 3. But Final Fantasy VII and Metal Gear Solid will be the proper American games, so you're in luck there. Let's all thank Sony for being merciful with two masterpieces. Another blast from the past that I delved into on disc that I had no hope would ever be on any compilation of PS1 games was Buster Groove. Or if you're Japanese, I think it's called Buster Move because they didn't have the bubble bubble name Buster Move thing. This is like an even more Japanese dance dance revolution, only rather than using the mat, you press the controller buttons Parappa the Rapper style. By the way, I also played the PS4 remaster of Parappa the Rapper recently. I still got stuck on that fucking chicken. Crack, crack. I'm doing this for years, but don't ask me why. There's some stuff in Buster Groove that's dated badly in here. I have an unexplained affection for the woman dressed as a cat and her Europop dance. Also like the snowboarder heat and I have a kind of a soft spot for the disco guy hero principally because he's not just a disco gag it's really hard to get him to do his disco stuff as, as opposed to it being easy the character of pinky though is the only african-american woman in the game and she's clearly a stripper with a fortune teller theme strike the gang member is stereotypically aggressive whipping out his guns like r kelly also drinking from a hip flask in the japanese version they changed that to a coke can uh, in the west and probably worst of all ham is both a walking fat joke who only ever sings about how much he likes eating hamburgers inside a fast food restaurant served by a dog, but he also has dark orangey colored skin, which is connected with something called ganguro fashion. Uh, this is something that borders on Japanese orange blackface, if any of that makes any sense. So it's like kawaii girls color their faces Trump orange, but like really dark. Why? Why? Are they trying to look like California girls? Kind of. It also relates to Japanese demons. This is something that just doesn't translate. Like, they've got blonde hair and dark skin, so they're, like, negative versions of of Japanese girls. It's kind of a punky thing. But it's also kind of racist. Well, not okay, but I understand. I mean, I don't understand. Never mind. Let's move on. Also, both Ham and Pinky have the N word in their songs in the Japanese version of this game. Like, if you listen to them online, you're like, Dude, 
it's not. You cannot be saying that. This wasn't at all cool 20 years ago, and it sure as shit isn't cool now. But I pushed on and tried to get into the game, finding that I was missing all my moves, just being slightly offbeat, even if I pressed at the exact time with the flash and the beat. I looked deeper into lag on old consoles, and I found that thanks to a tip-off from Matt Wetter, who likes this game too, that new TVs have a game mode that you can toggle on and off that reduces the work they're doing in polishing up the picture. The reason I was lagging is because the TV was putting in extra work. That way you're seeing it as it plays rather than what it looked like half a second ago. I toggled it on. There was still lag. I trained myself to hit the buttons a fraction of a moment before each beat, but it was still wildly imprecise and cruel with its assessments as to whether I was on time or not. This isn't rock band. There's no synchronization. You either play or you don't. And after Lyra and I pushed through every song, we had to pull out. This game, like light gun games on a non-CRT TV screen, is going to be forever barred to us on this TV. Okay, so I'll do the other games in short order. Tekken 3 turned out to be Lyra's favorite. She really liked how chunky and blocky and, and like straightforward it is as a fighting game. Like She's never particularly liked the, mod, the more modern Tekkens. I don't think I've ever really shown them to her. But this one, relative to the others, there's a lot of personality to it. And it's a really solid fighting game. It's got excellent architecture of combat, if that makes sense. As in, the attacks and defends and counters all feel accessible. It works for button mashers and tacticians alike. It's a real. It's it's my favourite now, definitely version of the series. I thought if I go back, I'd be like, I don't know, Tekken five or six or Tag Tournament two is way better. But no, still three. Although. If you're American, you're lucky, so just buy it on eBay because you can get the uh, PS1 disc and it'll play properly. You can't get that on PSN and it won't play on UK PlayStations. They've region locked out American PlayStation 1 discs. There is no way for me to play this game in American. And the unlock chain is fun. Like When you complete it, the arcade mode, once you unlock Kuma. When you complete the arcade game a second time, you unlock Julia. And you know... Uh, you can also unlock costumes and stuff. I used to love that. I played so much Tekken just to unlock it. And then I played the Dark Horizon Phoenix whatever tournament version of 4 or 5 or whichever. And it had everything unlocked from the get-go. And it's like, I get that I'm in the minority here. I was reading uh, reviews for Soul Calibur 6. And this very issue came up about how nothing should be locked off in a fighting game anymore in this day and age. But for me, it was the fact that stuff was locked up that made me want to explore it. If it's all there to begin with, I just go, eh, I might play with a few of my favorite fighters, but I'm not going to want to complete it with everyone to see their end sequences. Getting those extra costumes, those extra characters, that just lends it that little bit of extra incentive. To know that every time you play through and put some effort into it, you're making your general experience and choice greater. Of course, these days, why let you unlock characters when they can sell you characters? Do you know that... Yoda and Darth Vader, which you used to be able to purchase individually for Soul Calibur 4, have been off the PlayStation and Xbox stores for years. Which means you can't get a complete edition of Soul Calibur 4. You can't have Yoda fighting Vader. This is one of the many, many problems with gating off bits of the game into purchasable digital unlocks, especially if it's licensed. 
Tenchu Stealth Assassins, the uh, ninja game, uh, back in 98, I actually said, this is better than Metal Gear Solid. I'd played them both. The idea of hugging walls, sneaking around, dispatching samurai, it was really great back in the day. And now I'm playing it and it's like you're piloting a rusty car. It's just hideous. The 3D environment seems to work against you. The controls battle with you to make sure that you get spotted, that you blunder into view. One of the most famous things about ninjas is that they hide in the shadows. Now, the draw distance means samurai guards wander around in the distance in the shadows, and as you draw near to them, they reveal themselves and spot you. It's the opposite of the way it should be. It was one of the most unplayable experiences that I that I had while I was doing all of this. This was one of my favorite games from back in the day, but it is broken as fuck now. Uh, I remedied this by buying the Wii version, which somebody recommended, and it's so much worse because they've got no excuse at that point. It's, it's, it's been many, many years since. There's been plenty of really good 3D stealth games, several Metal Gear Solids by this point. It was released in 2009, after Metal Gear Solid 4, and you're waggle controlling this thing, and it is a nightmare of just, again, blundering into view and getting seen and being sent back. And there was this, like, quick time events where you had to move the Wiimote like a sword. But if you didn't immediately go diagonally to the right, it was like, ah, you're fucked up, go back again and then run round to the beginning. And then, oh, God. It reminded me how much I hate the waggle controls of so many Wii games and why I barely played that system aside from the virtual console. And it reminded me that the Tenchu series now pretty much doesn't have any good games to it. It never did. And if they want to resurrect it, they can. But I'm frankly much more interested in more Mark of the Ninja, please, Clay. Played Gran Turismo for a very short while. Most of all, it felt like uh, I was watching an existing car racing game that had been run through a filter and then run through another filter and another and another and another to reduce the polygon count and reduce it again and reduce it again until the cars were made up of about 12 polygons. It still controls in a kind of way that I remember enjoying and it still felt slick and special like going look we've got all of these you know different types of car labels and this will probably never end up on any um, uh, compilation lists because they'd have to pay Nissan and Honda and Mitsubishi for all of these licenses for all of these cars they'd just be better off not doing that so Again, this disc is very easy to get hold of, uh, and it's probably just best to get so that you can remind yourself that the original Gran Turismo doesn't work that well now, and I think the more recent Gran Turismos, people have just complained that they're incredibly boring relative to something like, say, Forza. This was the first racing game that I believe really impressed me with its visual style and felt authentic. It really stood out. I mean, I was doing donut curls around the track the first time, but it was, I believe, the first racing game that I really progressed in the career mode with. I don't think that would be possible today, not with this game. It's just too painful on the eyes, even in high-res mode. Wipeout was one of those games I never played on the PlayStation. It was... I, I will credit Wipeout with making uh, the PS1, or assisting with the PS1 becoming very popular in the club scene in the UK. A lot of like, you know, a lot of mid to late teens gravitated to it because they were, you know, pumping out Orbital and the Prodigy and quality dance music, which made the early 90s dance music look like garbage. Not garbage the band, actual garbage. But I'd never really played Wipeout, so I was 
playing along and it was like, well, it's kind of like F-Zero, which I also never really played. And it felt really claustrophobic. You're in this impersonal, cold little hovercraft and you fly forwards and you try to go over the speed mats and you just go forwards. And that's it. I don't get why people love Wipeout. Do get it. I felt like rather than that wonderful freedom that you can experience when you're uh, doing a long drift in Super Mario Kart or, or um, you know, the, just the, the massive expanse of sky in Forza Horizon and, or, or just, you know, bombing through stuff in Motorstorm uh, or Grand Theft Auto doing those crazy jumps. But in this, it was like, no, go down the corridor. You bump the side of the corridor. Go down the corridor better. So I think this is testament to what I posited earlier about if it wasn't a fixture of your life back then, it's going to be really difficult to integrate it now. And it turns out I had uh, Wipeout HD that I'd uh, um, downloaded years ago, and I put that on. I was like, well, this will at least look better. It's the same game! So that, to their credit, it's the same game. So if you like going down the corridor well, you'll enjoy Wipeout HD. But there's very little reason to go back and play Wipeout SD. I played Bloody Raw 2. That was a, a game that came with the uh, PS1 that I'd bought. It's... Kind of like Tekken, only they turn into werewolves. Uh, the only notable thing about it is that there's a were-tiger, and his evil version uh, turns into a purple were-tiger. And I was like, a purple tiger at last! And that's about it. It's not as good as Tekken. It was all right, though. Lyra enjoyed it. Soulblade, Lyra also really enjoyed it. I think she may even have enjoyed it a little bit more than Tekken, because the block button and the kick button and the horizontal and... Uh, vertical are more clear what you're doing. Like, if somebody blocks, you're like, how do you do that? Press X. Can I oh. have a go on that? Yes, of course you can. We'll definitely Because that's, that's one of the very, very few um, PlayStation games that I played while I was at uni. Did you play the arcade version of it? Or? No. Like someone, someone's, someone's room. PlayStation 1 game, yeah. Also, the intro to Soul Blade is astonishing still. It's incredible. We all need to shine on to see. <laughs> yeah, we can play that. Cool. And it still looks surprisingly good. It's a really tight engine. Like I can see why it didn't take much to make Soul Calibur out of this, as in they just kind of spruced it up, gave it the you know next generation graphics, and it's also got there's a lot of depth to it. The 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 Soul Edge mode and being able to do stuff with with it, and uh, you know these loads of challenges to you know you, you've been poisoned you've got to fight this guy in like four seconds otherwise you die and and for that you get a special sword that's neat they really put extra into what i mean back back in the day there was a lot of one-on-one fighting games everyone was trying to be street fighter or mortal Kombat. virtual fighter up until now there's been very little competitive play in the uh, soul caliber series because it's considered more of a tits and swords show and less of a technical game I enjoy how easy it is to make fights spectacular. That's what I like about it. Much like the Marvel vs. Capcom games. I certainly have zero interest in being beaten up by a slew of online Kens. It's so boring doing ranked play in Street Fighter. I don't get how people do it. Just going, oh, who are you going to choose? Oh, it's Ken or Ryu, maybe, for some change. But no one ever chooses anyone else. Just Ken, Ken, Ken. Akuma, Ken, Ken. Ryu, Ken. Oh, what are you going to do now? I suppose a Hadouken. Oh, I'm just going to jump it. Oh, you did the counter with the Shoryuken. Well, well done you, Ken. It's so fun fighting you again and again, you million-faced Ken. Played Driver, and that got Lyra laughing. 
Specifically, we played the mode survival mode where you're being chased by cops and you just got to stay alive for as long as you can. And you're bombing around the streets of San Francisco and they are going crazy, ramming into you, smashing you into buildings. Usually you only last a few seconds and it's just frantic and it's it's not so much forgiving, but they let you restart really quickly. So it's like, I wonder how long I can last this time. It's great to have modes like that open from the beginning, just to give your game as much variety as possible. Because as I recall, we didn't try it, but the tutorial for that game is ridiculously punishing. It's like, do 18 different maneuvers in your car from this checklist. You got a minute and a half. Go! It's like, that wasn't a three-point turn, that was a 3.1 turn. Goodness sake. Sounds like taking a driving test. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very similar to what Grand Theft Auto 3 ended up on. You'd never get out of the car. And it's got that kind of... 70s car chase uh, aesthetic to it but it's obviously very very plain undecorated cityscapes but it's it's there it's basic it's kind of worth playing if you enjoyed it before if you have not played this this is not a game to really go for i do realize what i just said was that i love it when games have loads of stuff available to you from the get-go and i also really really like unlocking things lots of modes at the beginning is a really good idea but unlock things like characters and outfits I would not object to a version of Resident Evil 2 with the fourth Survivor and the Tofu game available at the beginning. Games, especially old games, have a very limited amount of time to grasp your attention when you've got so much vying for it. So, extra modes, good idea. Tekken 3, of course, has Tekken Force mode, which is kind of a side-scrolling brawler. Chicken. Siphon Filter was, again, virtually unplayable. I recall saying, this is better than Goldeneye in one rabid afternoon. It's not. Um... But the one thing that remains in it is that you can use your taser to tase guys in the balls, and then you just hold it and just keep tasing and tasing and tasing, and eventually they go, and then they go on fire. It's great, but you don't let go, and they'll never fall down until you do. Yeah, it's disturbing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a 3D cover-based shooter without cover mechanics. So imagine playing Gears of War, only you can't crouch behind things. You can just run up to walls and stand facing them and hope that you don't get shot from one side. It's, it was a game type waiting to evolve. Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver, I got purely for the voiceover by Tony J. This narrator who's like, remember what I told you, Raziel? I know you, Raziel. You are worthy. What pitiful form is this that I have come to inhabit? I would choose oblivion over this existence. The choice is not yours. You are reborn. The birth of one of Cain's abominations traps the essence of life. It is this soul that animates the corpse you lived in. He is, of course, Judge Claude Frollo in Hunchback of Notre Dame and Megabyte, the bad guy in Reboot. He's got this amazing voice. And the actual gameplay, you play this former vampire who now eats souls. You've got to, like, kill a bunch of, like, scratty, rat-like vampire men. But you can't just beat them to death. They have to be killed in certain ways. So you've got to beat them till they're stunned and then throw them into wall spikes or grab a, a, a spear from the uh, wall and, and impale them on it, Vlad the Impaler style, or get a torch from the wall and set them to flame or throw them into a bonfire or throw them into holy water. It's, there's a lot of throwing, but it's, it's tactical, so like, you have to sort of assess your surroundings. That's a good game type idea, the idea that you could just keep pounding on these guys all day long, just pounding it. And pounding it 
And they wouldn't go down. <laughs> well, that's just rude. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it looks pretty janky, but uh, it's it's got some promise and, and could feasibly do with an upgrade. Although it's very steeped in 90s baditude, like, it, it, like pre-baditude. Like, whatever Spawn had, self-seriousness and trying to be awesome all the time. Mm. It's like slightly before the way that Prince of Persia went from being shiny and, and heroic prince to being a dark brooding prince. It's not even that cool. Todd McFarlane's Dark Place. Yes, exactly. Uh, I played Soviet Strike, which is a continuation of the Strike series. I liked Desert Strike. I really loved Jungle Strike. I never got Urban Strike. I think I'd at that point moved on to the Super Nintendo, which had Urban Strike on it anyway. I don't know why I didn't get Urban Strike at the time in 1994, seeing as I loved Jungle Strike that much. By 1996, two years after Urban Strike, this Soviet Strike came out, I got most of the first level done, just remembering how, you know, you, 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 you fly your helicopter up to an installation, you go back a bit because they start to fire rockets at you, and then you kind of, like, fly around them, shooting them until they explode, and you pick up guys, and you move to the next place. And you can look for fuel when you're running low on fuel and ammo when you're running low on ammo. It's kind of an, an isometric arcade tactical shooter. And it was fun. And I died at the very end. I was like, you son of a bitch. Have I got to do this whole thing again? And then it went, the password for this level. And I went, hang on, I'm just going to go check online. There are passwords for every level. You can enter passwords rather than having to save games. That's like master system level of Yes, stuff. it is. And that's how the Strike series always did it. Where it was like, you enter the password, you get to there. And I'm like, you just earned yourself staying in my collection. Because the next time I play, I'm going to enter the password for level two. And fuck y'all. Because... I don't have to actually get the save. Not a problem. So the thing that struck me most about Soviet Strike was how little it had really advanced as it went up a generation. They just added more polygons. But also that the trappings of the previous generation, which had been held over, weirdly work in its favour now. I like the fact, by the way, that when you you were describing that game, my head was creating a kind of Spectrum ZX 48K level pixel version of this where the helicopter explodes and you get like smoke made out of squares honestly it's not far <laughs> off it's just the squares are smaller I see. oh and the other thing is that while you're playing it and you check the map and you're like right fuel drums are up and to the right and then you sort of fly up and right and you're like why doesn't this map have waypoints it makes no sense that i can't mark on this map which direction to fly to get to these fuel drums. I have to keep looking at the map like an idiot. Even if you're flying a helicopter, you've got a navigator looking at the map telling you where to go. So that would be the shortcut. You can There's a compass telling you northwest, blah, 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 but not relative to where you are. Again, it's a game type waiting to evolve. Another couple of games I picked up from the American store... Dino Crisis and Dino Crisis 2. Now, I remember getting Dino Crisis at the turn of the century after loving Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3. And the first game is directed by Shinji Mikami, who directed Resident Evil and the Resident Evil remake, and Resident Evil 4. So I picked it up expecting it to be as gripping as RE, and for some reason I kind of lost interest really quickly. And then I started playing it again today, and they've gotten rid of the pre-rendered environments. That's where 
that this PlayStation had a peculiar habit, like, I don't think any other generation really did this, of letting your character run around in a photograph, effectively. If, uh, like one that was created by the, uh, the game developers, but like a completely static background. It was the province of the, the Philips CDI and that kind of stuff. You know, all Final Fantasy 7, 8, and 9 all had this going on. And then we moved on to the next generation, and it was all moving environments, like fully created. So as you ran past a f- wirelink fence, for example, that wirelink fence was created to be a standout polygonal model within the game. And there's something to be said about the pre-rendered static nature and the fixed camera of RE 1, 2, and 3. It makes you feel like you're being observed by cold eyes all the time. Cold, dead, immovable eyes. Which, in particular, considering you're sifting through scenes of devastation, increases the sense of menace, which you, which dissipates when you're running around an action environment. Effectively, the mutation of the Resident Evil games, from the proudly self-proclaimed world of survival horror, into the action series with horror elements that it became, was beginning now. So Dino Crisis feels more like that. It's uh, Code Veronica, if you guys have played it, to, to know the difference between pre-rendered and the fully modeled environments. So automatically there's a, a disconnect in Resident Evil terms there. And you would think, I love Resident Evil, it's the same director, and my God, do I love dinosaurs. How is this not a recipe for being gripped? I don't know, guys. Play Dino Crisis for a while, and you, you'll you'll see how... It doesn't do its best to draw you in. And from the looks of it, there's a hell of a lot of lengthy puzzling. You know, a lot of moving crates around with forklift trucks and putting colored plugs in the right sockets. Not, not stuff that you remember as being particularly standout moments of your gaming lifetime. Oh, and the other thing being that if it's just a mad scientist creating raptors and a T-Rex, there's none of the majesty of the herbivore side of Jurassic Park. And there's none of the nature. It's all the science facility. So I haven't advanced in it. I'm not sure yet. I've got misgivings, but I will press on to the end. However, Dino Crisis 2, and I haven't gotten into it, but apparently is a lot more just action. It's like the mercenaries in Resident Evil Nemesis. So it's like, you're stuck on Dino Island. you got to get out of here. you got 10 minutes. Oh my God, raptors are coming for you. Kill them. Kill them with your shotgun. And it's a lot more frantic, a lot more action-based dumb as hell, and I'm kind of looking forward to that. Anyway, there's six bucks on the American store. Metal Gear Solid. Honestly, I feel like we're going to do a solo show on Metal Gear Solid, even if it's just a quick review. I can't do it justice here. I've got to finish it. I can't just say, well, this is what Metal Gear Solid plays like. It, it plays like I remembered it, but it's incredibly detailed. And this is one of the finest games of that generation, in fact, of all time. And it warrants full attention. So stay tuned for that one. Vagrant Story is a JRPG. I now have no time for JRPGs. Unless they are JRPGs I have already completed. They are 40 or so hours of very anime-style interactions. Vagrant Story was in my collection anyway, because I recall getting it back in the PlayStation in early 2000 or so. Uh, after I'd finished Final Fantasies 7, 8, and 9, I wanted something. And it's a dungeon crawler, which is a different kind of RPG. And it's really tactical 
and I got overwhelmed in the end. I was just like fighting a dragon, and I could like doesn't matter, didn't matter how I approached it from the save point I was at. I was just going to keep dying, and I never even got that far on the um, version that I got from the PSN. So I was struck by how well directed it was relative to a lot of other games I'd been playing. That just it had a, a real artistic sparing use of imagery the character design uh was um, fantastic and, and actually reminded me of um final fantasy 12 which i believe takes place in the same realm i'm gonna say ivalice i'm probably wrong please don't at me i don't care it's anime stuff it is ivalice which is the setting for final fantasy tactics vagrant story final fantasy 12 and all spin-offs thereof and and Crystal Defenders. But uh, yeah, the actual character design looks gorgeous in Vagrant Story. I just don't think I'm going to be able to ever play it. It's too long, protracted, too JRPG. But the artist who needs to be commended here is uh, Akihiko Yoshida. It's kind of revealing how important Japan was at this stage of gaming. Artistically speaking, all the standout stuff came from there. I played Final Fantasy VIII, which was terrible. It's only worth buying at all if you still loved it. Like uh, This is the PAL version I got, so it's all squashed. Bought it back in 2010-ish when Sony Europe saw fit to release this broken-ass version. This is before I knew about the whole American account thing. The, it begins, it's a, it's a slovenly beginning after a ridiculously self-serious intro sequence that's kind of doing O Fortuna. And it wastes 30 or so minutes of your time telling you pointless micro-world-building exposition, just telling you shit you don't need to know about this anime Hogwarts that you're at. This is a game where you become more powerful by sucking spells out of creatures, which sounds like a really fun idea, but the point is you've got a max limit of 99, which means that you find a creature that has fire, you've got to suck 99 fire out of it and then suck 99 fire out for your other characters. It takes forever. You've got to do that for every spell that you want them to specialize in. Then you attribute those abilities to those spells, but every time you use a spell, you lower those abilities. So that means you're not using magic. You're going around the whole game with everyone at 99, but you're not using magic. And the whole game is linked to these dark aeons, these the summons from Final Fantasy VII, and your entire character revolves around which of these monsters you have connected to them slotted into them. And there was this one dark Aeon called Carbuncle that I missed, and he has something called Shell. You know, I was running around this ridiculous labyrinth, and then I eventually ended up bungling straight into the sorceress, and I'd just saved before her, and she uses magic that can only be held off you with Shell. So I had effectively saved the game after the point that I had not picked up the crucial defense mechanism to survive that encounter. It was filled with ways to make your game time longer but less fun. So playing it again, this time-wasting, this self-seriousness, this pretentiousness, world-building over character, concept over story, force-feeding you technical minutiae over getting you interested with revealing character action. Lots of the things I don't like about anime came rearing back up again. And then it wouldn't save. I was like, right, I've got past all the this is what anime Hogwarts is like, let me save. And I found that 
the virtual memory card system of the PlayStation 3 has its restrictions. You can only save like 14 to 16 places on this virtual memory card you created. If you want to save and all the blocks are filled up, you've got to quit out from your game and go and make another memory card and call it something else. Uh. Fucking design flaw. What the hell? What the hell? And so I'm never going back to Final Fantasy VIII. They'd stolen a half an hour from me. I am never playing that game again. I completed Final Fantasy VIII back in the day. Lyra pointed out that the uh, lead character, who she called Squall, was emo to the extremo. (laughs) I said it's fine to be emo to the extremo, though most anime heroes are. He also fell into the boobs of a passing girl. There once was a boy. The boy had blue hair. And his stepmom also had blue hair. He was emo to the extremo. You see, the boy had a tragic backstory, which was that Pokemon killed his family. I didn't expect to be very happy replaying Final Fantasy VIII, but I didn't expect to be repelled by it, and I was repelled. Final Fantasy IX, however... Amazing music, beautiful design from the beginning. I loved playing this back in the day. It never outstayed its welcome. It is charmingly scripted, charmingly painted. In the UK, in PAL, it is unacceptably crushed. Just seeing it now, I was like, this of all the games that I'm playing, I can't play 40 hours of this squashed down like it is. Luckily, feasibly I could pay $10 and get it from the American store, or I could pay $20 and get the upgraded, polished up version on the PlayStation 4, which is, it's not like an HD remaster, but they've got rid of the aliasing and um which is like where it goes like weirdly fuzzy around the edges um and uh they've made it brighter and sharper and they've also put a bunch of cheats in to allow you to fast forward through some of the grinding and stuff that's 20 dollars. that's 17 pounds i'm just gonna wait for a sale and i will pick that up at that point i missed the sale it was available a few weeks ago for a few quid less but I was thinking, oh, it's only £4 less. Maybe I'll wait for a bit longer. Mm. Bear in mind, I bought this on disc originally. Then I bought the PAL version digitally. Then I bought it on Steam recently. The upgraded PS4 one is, of course, the same version that's on Steam. So spending another $20 on a fourth version of the same game, I already own at least twice. It's not an immediate, yes, gotta do that. That's why sales help. But I never play games on Steam. I spend all day in this chair in the office and I end up aching. I don't want to get back in that chair later in the evening when I'm supposed to be playing games. Want to play it in my living room. And the only version I've got available in my living room is squashed. It's not good. It is not the way to play this game. Which again is why I'm happy that I got the Final Fantasy VII from the American store. Although again, you can get the upgraded PS4 version of that. So if you really want to devote your time to it, it might really be worth spending the extra cash. Especially as they ain't remaking Final Fantasy IX anytime soon, and when the Final Fantasy VII remake comes out, my god the disappointment. These fans can't even handle how Star Wars is turning out. Could you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what they're going to say about Final Fantasy VII? Fuck in Christ. Again, this is where the pre-rendered backgrounds popped out. Since I was playing the American version of this, I was less inclined to upgrade it to the uh, PS4 version. I don't feel like it has to be fully polished up, possibly because I'm also expecting the remake at some point in the future, some distant point in the distant future. It's still charming as hell, that music again. 
It seems more basic once you've played Final Fantasy IX. Like, the models without mouths are lacking in some of the character, and there's less of a beauty and elegance about this industrial setting. But I also slipped back into it like a treat, and I feel like I'm gonna soldier on with this one. Ha, huh, soldier. This is one of the formative, emotional moments for me in video gaming. Not just the obvious death, but the process of assembling a team, and then as we wandered around the world, going into the previous lives of that team and looking at their pain, which underpinned Mass Effect 2, one of my other favorite games of all time. And clearly, Final Fantasies 7 and 9 have informed decades later on my writing in Steamheart and The Princess Thieves. There's a reason why Final Fantasy 7 is considered special. Uh, it's been considered overrated in, in years since, and on a technical level, it is inferior to a bunch of games that came later. And on a storytelling level, it's meandering and oblique and very anime. But there's something very earnest about it. It's very difficult to listen to the music and, and, and feel cynical. So if you've never played this game before, ever, if you have the time, and if you are interested in gaming history, I believe it to be worth those hours. And lastly but not leastly, Spider-Man, which I mentioned on our Spider-Man show. This is the Activision original, the one based on the Tony Hawk engine, which is surprisingly tight and intuitive. It feels obviously a lot more blocky if you've been playing the PS4 one. It is a huge, huge downgrade. But like I said, when I played the PS4 one, I could feel very, at the very base of it, the bones of this PS1 version. So it looks like kind of the prototype for the big Apple. They're like, you know, in 18 years, we're going to have a really good version of this game. We're just going to work on it for those 18 years. Here's what we've made so far. And it was that. The fact that everybody looks like Dr. Doak from GoldenEye is a problem. Everyone's got these great big flat faces with these sort of fixed-on expressions. And But the, the voice caster are fun and lively, and so it kind of it has enough personality to get you through, whereas with GoldenEye, everyone's just speaking in text. But yeah, the, uh, the, the combat, the swinging around, the uh, presentation, and the fact that Stan Lee's doing your narration. If you have access to a PS1 and you love Spider-Man, Provided you don't mind playing a janky, prototypical version of something really excellent now, this might really be worth tracking down. Why, Venom? Why did you come back? You should know, Spider-Man. The heist you pulled at the Science Expo. You're the bad guy this time. You idiot! Think, Eddie. Think back to that day. I was with you, in the crowd! An imposter Spider-Man was on stage! He burned both of us, and now we've been played against each other! <sighs> You're right, partner. <laughs> Mary Jane! We've got you! You and your wife are innocent, Parker. Our bad! Our bad? Our bad?! I'm gonna kill Peter you! Parker! Just get me out of here now! <sighs> Bummer! You're in the doghouse now, dude. Coming, honey. So there's my way of playing PlayStation games for the future. 
I probably spent about £250 all told. Some of it was stupidly buying things twice. Some of it I'll get back flogging the titles I don't want on eBay, which of course you can't do with the Mini. It's all 20 for £90 or nothing. When I'm done with all that lot, I'm sure I'll go back to the ones I had the most fun with, but it's worth noting that I also picked up a bunch of extremely cheap PlayStation 3 games in my travels back and forth to CEX, few of which I've played, but all being Sony exclusives that I was barred from in my Microsoft-only years, including Ratchet & Clank, Tools of Destruction, Motorstorm Pacific Rift, Motorstorm Apocalypse, Mod Nation Racers, Little Big Planet 2, Infamous 2... The Last of Us, people have been asking us about that for years. We're not going to do a show on it, guys. We've actually already seen all the cutscenes, but I still need to play it. And I repurchased the non-remastered Uncharted trilogy because I hate how they look at high frame rate on PS4. That's also why I didn't buy The Last of Us remastered. Uncharted 3 cost me £1.50. That's insane. So did Uncharted 2. Metal Gear Solid 4 cost me a pound. If you already own a PS3 and it's in storage, I heartily recommend breaking it back out and checking in on some of the titles you've got already, or making a list and hunting through eBay or the PSN store, especially if you live in the UK. Look into the American games you can get because they really are transformed. I can't recommend getting an original PlayStation, PS1 or just the big grey thing. Even if you manage to get it working, it's going to look pretty bad. There are Boxes and cables you can get if you really want them, but even on PS3, even on the Mini outputting at 720p on some titles, they're still going to look like shit compared to the newer installments from the same or similar series. But it will look its absolute worst, its lowest optimum, on the PlayStation 1. So why do this? Why go back and pay far over the odds to re-examine the past when so many would rather have it left buried? The one major reason I do it is to not indulge in nostalgia so much as to defy it. When we replay something we have built up in our heads as capital P perfect, and I use that word correctly here, like Final Fantasy VII, and really get a whiff of the restrictions and limitations and shortcomings and peccadilloes when held up against today's best, it actually allows us something precious to our outlook on life. Perspective. It allows us to stop pining for a time when everything was perfect by acknowledging that even if they were right back... By acknowledging that even if they were back then, they aren't now at all, which in turn allows us to better appreciate what we have right now. You could not be back then knowing what you know now and see these games as perfect. That time is gone. It doesn't work for everything. If you go back and watch Ghostbusters 1984, you'll get an amazing experience relative to the 2016 film. But I'm not a subscriber to the idea that the past is best left buried. Underground, in its peaceful, undisturbed catacombs, the past can't teach us anything. The examined past feeds and nourishes us, even if sometimes it tastes like broccoli when we remembered strawberry ice cream. I now know for sure that Resident Evil 2 is a superb game, and Tenchu is an unplayable wreck. 
Two weeks ago, I might have considered these two to be peers. We paid the same price for them on disc, and yet it took them being dragged from history for me to make a contemporary judgment. We should be able to examine films like Casablanca in context and see what a profound influence it has had on the medium of film. Equally, we should be able to compare it with Crazy Rich Asians and find the characters of Casablanca thin and inhuman, the dialogue stumbled out as fast as possible without pause for the meaning to sink in, or to register on the faces of these actors, themselves venerated to demi-godlike status when compared to these fresh, young, relative unknowns, or even industry warhorse Michel Yeoh. That's movies. Games have been developed in stages. Pong represents the birth of 2D and Super Mario World, arguably the apex of 2D, even as the same machine, the Super Nintendo, attempted its crude approximation of 3D with Mode 7. The PlayStation was there as 2D ceded the floor to 3D, and just like Pong, those first titles are as hideous as Humphrey Bogart's taint by today's standards. They were in 2005 as SD gave way to HD. They were in 2013, as HD was succeeded by even HD. They are now in 2018, as the rumblings of the PlayStation 5, its great-great-grandson, capable of the hest D imaginable, stir on the internet. But even if you just throw all the bollocks and faff aside and just buy a mini to delve into the library and see it for yourself, which, watching on YouTube, rather than actually playing with a pad in your hand, honestly cannot compare to... What you're doing is examining the base of a supremely important wave. Whether it's on PS3, PS1, PS2, PSTV, or even Vita, you're playing history, as part of their tagline is, play history, make history. You're not going to make history, folks. That's an ad line that tells you you're so special and you're going to change the world by playing this product. You're not going to make history, but you can play history. You can change the world, but it's not by buying a product. Don't let them lie to you. In the case of much of it, you're playing a broken, compromised, befuddling, baffling, motley grab bag of history, hardly comprehensive and with no guiding hand to put it into context. For that, you're going to have to do your own research. It's still an experience I recommend. In an age of live services, microtransactions, pushy storefronts, randomized loot boxes deliberately preying on the gambling addictions of the few, a bloated and staggering AAA market falling inwards in its contradictory search for a game that looks and feels like everything else and still sells 4 million copies, buying six extra Marvel vs. Capcom characters for £25 in a game that had its roster intentionally slashed and lest we forget frozen horse testicles going back to the PS1 however you do it is a bag of analogue treats mixed with analogue broccoli so I've been Alex Shaw I've been Sharon Shaw and School's Out Transcending History and the World A Tale of Soul and Swords Eternally Retold